Good afternoon. Today I have Jim with me. Hiya, Jim. Would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself? Thanks, Donna. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Jim Napier, and I'm uh, both a reviewer and a novelist. Um, and I've written, uh, started a series of books uh, called the Colin McDermott Mysteries. The first of the mysteries is this one, Legacy. Uh, and that's set in 2015. And the protagonist of that series is uh, a detective inspector with the Metropolitan Police in London at Charing Cross Police Station. Uh, and in this particular uh, story, he's, um, he's faced with a traffic death that seems pretty routine, um, no indication of anything uh, any foul play going on, but um, the victim has no identity on herself. Uh, and it seems to be a road traffic accident in the middle of London uh, involving a bus. Uh, and, but when they go to uh, identify her in order to notify her next to kin, uh, they can't, they have no identity. And so they have to get pretty clever in order to find out who she is. And in the process, they discover that she has not one, but two identities. So he sets his team on that. Um, and ironically uh, and uncomfortably for him, the story goes back to his very own alma mater, the college he attended in London. And he has to investigate her presence there and be concerned about whether one of his old colleagues or mentors is involved in things. Uh, he's assisted by, uh, by two principal detectives, uh, Detective Sergeant George Ridley, who's a bit of a dinosaur. Um, he's nearing retirement and, and he hasn't had a lot of experience uh, working closely with women officers. Remember, this is 2015. He's back just a few years. He's from Yorkshire. And, um, and he's assisted, as I say, by a new officer on the team, uh, Detective Sergeant Wilhelmina Quinn. And she's very much a contemporary kind of officer. She's gone through police school. She's on an accelerated program. And the two of them uh, uh, work work this particular case. And did you always know that you wanted to be a writer? Well, pretty well. Um, I, I began writing uh, short stories in the science fiction genre when I was uh, probably 12 years old, 12 or 13. And fortunately, none of those exist. So I'll deny any uh, attribution to me. Uh, but um, since then, my, my life took a, a left turn from that path. And I became a university teacher, a university and college teacher. And uh, I did that until I retired. I took early retirement so I could get back to writing. Um, I knew that as long as I stayed in academia with all the committee work and all the marking and everything else that I wasn't going to get uh, any real writing done. So I took early retirement. And uh, unfortunately, I began 
by taking the advice of a colleague of mine, which was to write a, a column for the local newspaper reviewing books. And uh, that became very popular and it spread out to other newspapers and, and other uh, and websites. And um, it was uh, only after a while that I realized that I just exchanged one diversion for another. <laughs> uh, so I haven't dropped that entirely. I still do reviews uh, only of crime fiction, uh, but uh, uh, I also launched the, the Colin McDermott series and I have two books out in that now and I'm working on my third. And when you wrote the first book, did you know that it was going to be a series? Absolutely. That's what I was working for. I wanted a, uh, a protagonist, a principal character who had an interesting backstory uh, that I could develop over the course of several novels. And Colin McDermott fits that bill. He's, he's Irish by, by birth, um, but his parents moved back to, to England um, during the troubles over there. Uh, and uh, he has a sister who's still in Ireland uh, with her family, Neam. And um, he is settled in London. Uh, he's, he's was very comfortable in the context of this series, of this book, The Legacy, set in 2015. It's been 10 years since his wife was killed. She was a victim of the London bus bombings in 2005. And so he's been raising his daughter uh, since then alone. And she's now old enough to start university. She was four when, when her mother died and she's now 19 and she's in university. Uh, and so there's, there's backstory there. There's backstory with uh, George Ridley that comes very much to the fore in the second novel, which is Ridley's War. Um, and in that one, uh, George Ridley really has a chance to, to shine as a character. Uh, he and his father are both members of the same Yorkshire military regiment. And they go back to a, a military reunion in 26. That's a reunion, oh, sorry, 24. 2004. It's a reunion of uh, the Normandy landings. And during the reunion, um, one of the veterans is killed. And again, it looks like it might be an accident. But as they investigate further, they find out that whether or not it's an accident, uh, there's uh, some things that they have to look into. <coughs> Excuse me which go back to the war itself. And so uh, they, they dig into that. It, as the reunion is in Yorkshire, I have an opportunity to, to let Ridley shine with his Yorkshire accent and all of his Yorkshire friends. And when it goes back to the events of the war in, in uh, the Second World War, um, McDermott takes the lead on that and uh, winds up investigating things that happened in Italy in, uh, in the middle years of the war when the, the Allied troops in the 8th Army uh, moved from North Africa to the toe of Italy 
and uh, the regiment uh, that uh, is having the reunion was was front and center in, in those events. As most people will probably be able to tell by your accent, you're not British. So why did you decide to set your books in the UK? What 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 gave it away? <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm not British, uh, although my grandparents on both sides were British. Um, but uh, I'm very much an Anglophile. Uh, I'm, I'm attracted to to um, virtually everything British, except perhaps some of the the more uh, edgy uh, ethnic uprisings in some of the industrial towns. Uh, but um, uh, no, I, I, uh, I like virtually everything British and I, I've been going over there on a regular basis until COVID uh, uh, from 1987, the first time. Uh, I've been going at least annually, sometimes twice a year. Uh, for up to two months or two months and change uh, because being a teacher my summers are free and so I, I've spent a lot of time traveling in, in England uh, and in Scotland and in Wales. I haven't made Ireland yet and I do have a story in mind for McDermott that involves Ireland but uh, I'm not going to do it until I get over there. I've, I've been to Yorkshire, spent spent a fair amount of time there, so I was comfortable writing the Ridley's War, and I've also been to Italy, and uh, so I was able to draw on that experience for the same book, uh, but uh, but they're, they're headquartered, as I say, at Charing Cross in London. You have a favorite character. Well, I have three favorite characters. <laughs> And, and one villain of sorts. Um, McDermott is, is close to my heart. Uh, he's a, he's a, uh, a decent man, basically, middle-aged, trying to do the best he can by his daughter and very committed to his work. He came into his work through the back door. Uh, he, he uh, or at least his present job, he began as a graduate of a, a university college in London, as I mentioned a moment ago, and he graduated in art history. And he then got a job with the Corpold Institute in London uh, as an as a art historian. And uh, by virtue of that background, he was called in by the uh, Art and Antique Squad to authenticate uh, works of art, particularly paintings, uh, when those kind of issues arose. Uh, <clears throat> but then uh, the, uh, the Met has, has experienced staff reductions. I think anybody that follows the, the crime writing scene is pretty aware of that. And, uh, and there wasn't going to be ongoing work for him doing that. And so one of the art and antiques people advised him to to apply to the Met uh, as an officer and get training, and, and he did. And he, he, because of his academic background and university background, he was in the accelerated program and went through and, and made a, an officer in the CID. And uh, 
he now continues to to use that information from time to time and they've come up in, in both books so far and there's every possibility that they'll come up in further books as well and what's the most interesting thing you found doing research for your book so far oh that's hard i find it all interesting uh, the food uh, the locale i'm i'm something of a uh, a fanatic about getting things right uh, and uh, the first time around with legacy I pretty well did that myself on on my uh, own uh, but uh, I've been fortunate uh, with the second book to have additional material additional resources to draw on and now with the third book uh, I have several officers with the CID some with the same station that McDermott's at and others who are retired, uh, but have experience with that um, to draw on. And they've been very good at giving me, me background information and, and betting my, my ideas for accuracy or for currency. So, so yes, um, pretty well all of the issues. I, I like Yorkshire a lot. But I want to keep McDermott in London by and large. He will take forays out, and he, he is with the second book, with Ridley's Or. He's taking a foray first to Yorkshire uh, and then to uh, Italy. Uh, but, uh, and he may take further adventures if he, if he has any family situations like his sister in Ireland. Uh, but, uh, but by and large, I want to be rooted where he can can keep coming up against murder cases and not paint myself into the corner uh, of having, you know, uh, this little village with 600 people, but it has 35 homicides over the course of a couple of years. Well, you know, these things happen, I guess, especially in fiction. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, um, do you hide any secret jokes or messages in your books that only a few people will understand? Um, I don't think messages per se, but, but certainly there's inside information there um, that people who might have, have had similar experiences can, can share. And I try to make my mysteries solvable in the classical sense, the Agatha Christie sense, that I, I don't want to introduce a lot of technical information that, that no one else would have. Uh, so although there's forensic information in my stories. Uh, there's always going to be an investigation of the manner of death and the timing of death and those kinds of things. Um, I, I want to play fair with the readers and give them the opportunity to, to solve a mystery. And so I'll have uh, all of the clues necessary to, to get to the culprit in there, but uh, there'll be some red herrings as well that people have to work a bit on. What's been your most uh, difficult scene to write and what's been the most fun? Uh, well, it's all been fun, uh, even through the editing stage. I, I enjoy fine-tuning it and honing it and finding just the right word and taking out something that really doesn't work well. Uh, but um, the most challenging probably is when you come to uh, the tragic aspects of a case, uh, relatives left behind by someone that's been killed, 
uh, or a backstory uh, that involves some kind of, of suffering or abuse or whatever uh, in, in a character. Uh, I don't like to dwell on it. I don't have a lot of, of uh, uh, certainly I don't have a lot of gore or grit in my stories, but nevertheless, I have to touch base with the fact that there's a serious crime that's occurred and somebody has suffered because of it. So, so I try to get that in there and in a way that is plausible, believable and, uh, and moving, but uh, in a, in a, not in a way that will turn people off. Have you made lots of author friends since you started writing? Oh, I have quite a few. Um, in part because I have been a reviewer since 2005. So um, uh, I, Ian Rankin has looked at my book. Uh, um, Louise Penny, who's a, a friend from the region anyway, from Quebec. Um, and a number of other crime writing friends, Val McDermott, um, Ann Cleves, um, who have, have uh, given me a lot of encouragement, uh, and uh, and I continue to to uh, draw great satisfaction out of out of those friendships. Uh, it's it's a nice touch base, even if COVID has put a wet blanket on doing so in person for the most part. There's some small names there then that you've made friends with. <laughs> Oh, so by some random unknown people from the UK. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. Now they're they're great friends. They're very generous with their time and with their ideas. Uh, Peter James has been been very helpful in terms of, of making contacts with serving uh, police officers. Yeah, I can imagine. I know um, the Graham Bartlett, who is friends with Peter James, is very useful to crime writers. So. Yeah, I can imagine that he would be useful. Absolutely. And, and a really nice man. Uh, very generous for this time. Fun to know. If you know anything about Peter's background, you could throw a dart at, at his CV and, and uh, you'd find something interesting, whether it's making films or, or uh, working on his series set in Brighton. Yeah, he's on my list of interviewees that I would like to get, but so far, no luck. <laughs> <laughs> he's a busy man, and he's not going to get less busy with his new television series coming out. But uh, <laughs> if you're able to get him, you're going to be uh, very pleased with it. Yeah. Um, and do you get a lot of feedback from readers? Uh I, I don't get a huge amount of feedback, uh, but I, I do occasionally get feedback. I got more when, when I could be face-to-face -face and, and, and had a live events with, with groups of people. Um, but I do get things uh, either, either by uh, email on my website or uh, by personal contact when, when we could do that. Uh, and... Um, it, it's very nice. It's, it's a driving force to have that kind of enthusiasm face-to-face. Uh, -face. Uh, and I've had some very nice uh, comments from people. Uh, as, as you know, crime readers are 
or a dedicated group. And uh, when they run across an author that they like, they, they jump in with both feet. Yes, absolutely. Um, do any of your fellow bloggers still keep in touch and have they read your books and reviewed them? Yeah, quite a few have. Um, uh, there are, uh, and I've converted those into blurbs for my book. So if you look at uh, Legacy, for example, um, you'll find uh, references from other people. Kath Stainclef, for example, uh, described Legacy as a classic British whodunit reminiscent of the golden age. Napier depicts bitter political rivalry of academia and writes with dry wit and crisp dialogue. Uh, nice. That's not shabby from her. She's, a, she's an accomplished writer, so I was pleased to have that. And, um, and Eric Brown, who was a finalist for what used to be called the Arthur Ellis Award, now is the Crime Writers Association Award, uh, said, if you like Dog Leash, you'll love Inspector Colin McDermott, an unflappable stoic Brit with a warm heart and a professional's eye. Napier's London is 21st century cosmopolitan, while his St. Gregory's College is an amiable throwback to the cloistered world of eccentric and perhaps deadly academics. I think most people that are going to university know that most academics can be deadly if, if it's only by boring people. Uh, rich, textured, atmospheric writing with sensitively rendered three-dimensional characters that keep you turning your pages, the writing is first rate. Analysis from, and um, and there, there I have I think it's well over a dozen, maybe fifteen or sixteen authors who have, have uh, praised my book, and and it finds its way into the pages of the following book. Awesome. Um, what was your favorite first when you became an author? My favorite first. Well, I guess it's got to be seeing the book in print, finally holding it in your hands. And, and also, coupled with that, uh, hearing back from people who have uh, read the book. Uh, and I, I've had some very heartwarming kinds of comments from, from people. And, and along with that, as I say, it, it's nice to see uh, name authors accomplished authors uh, be so generous with their time. Uh, Martin Edwards, who goodness knows has got a lot of irons in the fires with the Crime Writers Association and, and all of the books that he edits or, or writes uh, had, took time out to, to read mine and praise it. And, and it's nice to have uh, those kind of words and since then I've been accepted into the Crime Writers Association as a full member so uh, as I say the generosity of, of authors is, is a big plus it's, it's very rewarding in these these strange times yeah if you're able to spend a day with any author dead or alive who would you like to spend the day with well, if it didn't mean that I was dead now, I guess Agatha Christie would be in the short list for certain. Um, um, not to say that I don't like people like Arthur Conan Doyle, um, but we have 
uh, moved somewhat away from the larger than life protagonist, you know, the, the clever detective that sees connections that nobody else sees. Uh, uh, we can, uh, can enjoy contemporary takes on that, that, that uh, play with the concept like the, the Benedict Cumbernage uh, series of, of uh, movies. But, uh, but Agatha Christie was just a fascinating person, I think, in real life. She was a lot like her, her Miss Marple in the sense that she could be unassuming and quiet uh, but her mind was always going full tick, and, and she, uh, uh, I'm sure she would be a, a really interesting person to, to get to know further. Definitely. Popular choice as well. <laughs> yes. Yes, still. Yeah. Um, if you're able to travel to any period of time, either forwards or backwards, where would you go to? <sighs> Forward, probably not so much. Um, I don't want to get, certainly as a writer, I wouldn't want to get uh, diverted by technological changes and, and into speculative fiction, sci-fi. Um, backward, um, the Second World War would be an interesting period, not specifically for the war itself, which is pretty well documented and understood, uh, but for the sake of, of the, the impact of, of war on uh, life of people back home. For example, in, in England on the home front, uh, the land army and, uh, and crime, the, the sort of foils war approach, uh, uh, crimes that occurred in during the war, but, but in a civilian setting. So uh, there's a lot to and, and that's a key aspect of my Ridley's War uh, volume in, in which uh, McDermott, Colin McDermott, goes back, actually takes some leave time himself and goes back to Italy to where uh, the, someone served, uh, someone in the regiment, uh, and in fact, the regiment served. And... Uh, uh, he tries to peel back the layers of history to find out just what happened, uh, even involving civilians uh, during that time. And I think that's fascinating. If you can get into, if you, the writer, you, the reader, can get into uh, the day-to-day minutiae of what it's like to be someone living in that time and in those settings uh, where you may be an occupied, you may have an occupied force governing your behavior or uh, there may be relationships between people in uniform and people out of uniform uh, just because they're moving around and there's a lot of stress and there's a lot of loneliness and so on. But I think uh, the Second World War would have been an interesting one. When you're not writing, how do you like to spend your time? <laughs> Busman's holiday, watching crime fiction on TV and reading crime novels. Um, the, the older I get, the, the more that defines my existence because I can't play tennis anymore. I'm not fast enough, etc. But um, 
uh, as a reviewer, I get a fair number of novels you know, coming across my desk anyway. Uh, before the pandemic, I got between 300 and 400 novels a year to read. And uh, I wasn't able to do that. I, I don't do speed reading. I, there was a time in college when I picked up that as a, as a tactic. But when I'm reading something I enjoy, I want to read it as much for the language as for the story. And so I linger over the passages uh, like you would over a nice glass of wine or scotch. Um, so uh, that defines my existence. My reading rate has gone down a bit. I don't do, don't look at three to 400 novels a year anymore. Uh, but uh, I try to be selective and focus on the ones that I, I think hold a lot of promise and, uh, and, and to include at least a percentage of those uh, new authors that I haven't run across before and frankly experimental works to try and play around with the genre a bit, uh, maybe in their time settings or uh, the way they relate their, their story. Uh, I just finished a novel uh, which was entirely told through documents. And that's a little bit, if you think about it, a little bit like Dorothy Sayers did a novel called Documents in the Case. Uh, this is like that, but it's a series of, of uh, transcripts of interviews with someone in uh, an intelligence organization. Uh, and we're unpacking the events involving that organization bit by bit through the various interviews. And, and it was a pretty audacious move on the part of the writer to, to attempt that and difficult. And, um, and I found it very enjoyable. Awesome. I've not heard of that. <laughs> I like something different. Yeah, it, it's not out yet, that one. It's um, coming out soon. I'll give a play to the author. I'm going to be reviewing him anyway. A man named David Whitten. It's a Canadian publication. Uh, and it's called Seven Down, which refers to the individuals involved in a mission that didn't quite go as it should have. And the question is, first of all, what was it? And secondly, why did it go that way? Um, what was I just going to ask you? I can't remember. Um, do you collect anything? Um, I collect single malts, <laughs> but uh, not too many at a time, probably half a dozen or a few more than that. Um, I used to belong to, uh, before COVID, uh, an in-person whiskey appreciation society uh, at the college I retired from. Um, but needless to say, with COVID, that hasn't been functioning for some time now, and it's unclear whether it's going to get restarted. But uh, it's called Kindred Spirits, which I think <laughs> indicates our passion. Nice. I like it. <laughs> I do collect books, too. Crime fiction books, especially. Uh, but I had to put a limit on that because our house is finite. 
And my wife suggested in the last house that we should buy the neighbor's house and put a tunnel between them and just use the other <laughs> house. For I haven't got quite to that state, but I, and I, I'm in the process of thinning down my collection to uh, the, the most interesting, but uh, it's still in the thousands. Yeah, I know the feeling. Um, I started reading on Kindle purely because of storage and then started interviewing people and they sent me signed copies of their books. So now I have like my books that I had for years and now I've got my signed books and I'm running out of space already. So I'm going to have to rethink my storage, I think. Exactly. <laughs> well, one of the things that I found that's useful with, with my books, particularly the review copies coming in, as I say, I get several hundred a year, uh, is uh, to uh, separate out uh, a bunch of them and give them away either to local libraries or to local retirement homes. And it's been a revelation to me just how bloodthirsty the people in retirement homes are. It, it may be that their day-to-day -day existence is tedious and they're looking for some kind of bizarre escapism, but but the uh, cliche of the little old lady knitting in the corner while she's plotting uh, innovative ways to, to kill somebody uh, seems to be closer to the truth than we might realize. <laughs> Interesting. I'll keep that in mind, although I'm not sure I want to uh, tool up old ladies with ideas of how to go out and kill people. <laughs> exactly. <clears throat> Because they'd go very much undetected, I would think. No one would think it would be the old pensioner. <laughs> and and as as they themselves sometimes point out, uh, the prospect of being caught and banged up in prison, or doesn't hold a lot of deterrence value for somebody that's already in their eighties or nineties. <laughs> they probably get treated better as well sometimes. No. <laughs> Um, so you said you're working on book three at the moment. Do you know what's coming after that? Hmm? Uh, I have, time permitting, uh, at least two more uh, in that series uh, in the back of my mind and to, and to some extent in, in computer files. Um, that's in the same series, the McDermott series. And I also have a period mystery in mind that, that I'm... I'm gathering notes when the spirit moves me, but I'm, I'm not actively uh, pursuing writing the book at this point. And that one would be a story involving, uh, it would be first of all set in, in California, where I'm from originally. Uh, and it would involve a, a World War II veteran from the Pacific uh, theater, uh, the wars against the Japanese. Uh, who has been injured and mustered out because his injuries mean he can't perform a, a combat function. Uh, and he's, he's back in a civilian setting in his, uh, the town he grew up in, uh, now a city, a real city, Santa Barbara. Uh, and, and he's uh, establishing himself there. And he gets, uh, he's first of all looking to reclaim a job. Uh, he was a, a, a patrol, uniform patrol officer in the police there when he volunteered to, to go in the army. Uh, and now that he's back, 
he wants to renew that, but his physical condition means that he, he uh, he's, he's recovering and eventually he's, he's going to be made whole, but uh, he's not able to do that at this point. So the, there's no really interesting job open to him. And so he looks for other jobs that might hold more interesting. He decides to follow his late father into, the, into journalism to become a, a writer for the local newspaper. And in the process of becoming a writer, he stumbles across a storyline that serves as the core of the mystery. But that would be said in, in 1944, 1945 in California. And so as, as time permits and as the spirit moves me, I run across, <coughs> excuse me, run across information that uh, I file away for it, but I haven't started writing it yet. <laughs> Well, you may be pleased to know that I can't think of any more questions for you at the moment, unless you think there's anything that I haven't asked you that you want to share with us. Uh, <clears throat> I'm not sure I have any 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 additional material that, that jumps to mind. I don't know whether you usually have people do readings from their books or, or not. Um, most people don't volunteer, but if you're willing, then I'm absolutely willing to listen. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, let me see. Uh, I think maybe one of the interesting readings would be uh, at the at the in the early pages, chapter one of uh, Ridley's War, uh, when the only information that we have at this point in time is that someone is driving a large box van uh, along the M62. Um, and the question is, what's gonna happen there? He gets tied up in a, in a road traffic accident. He's not involved himself, but he's in the midst of congestion and uh, he has, he's delayed. And uh, then he uh, makes his way back onto the highway uh, when that's cleared out and continues. And, in, and this picks up uh, his, his experience. It says the light was fading as the driver pulled his lorry onto the aging industrial estate and noticed a police traffic unit parked near the entrance. He eased up on the pedal best not to attract attention. He passed a small import-export business in a builder's yard housing some heavy equipment and drove up to a large gray brick building with grimy windows at the top and a small office to one side. He sounded the horn and after a moment, a man in blue coveralls appeared and walked over to his door, wiping his hands on an early oily rag. Switched on the Stitched on the breast of his coveralls was the name Gary. Where the hell have you been? We've been expecting you for best part of an hour. You think I'm happy about it? The driver growled. Can't do nouts about friggin' road accidents, can I? Stupid git won't be chasing it, causing any more, though, that's for sure. Open the door so we can get done and go home, eh? The man on the ground scowled, but didn't budge. Here, you ain't the regular bloke. Who are you then? And what happened to Tony? 
The driver looked down at the man, none too pleased. Name's George. Tony came down sick yesterday, sudden like, spewed his guts all over the floor. His wife's cooking, I don't doubt. Woman's a menace. Spent all night over the bog, he did. Asked me to fill in for him. Her mates used to work together before he got sent down. Now, are we going to get stand here and play silly buckers all night or get on with it? Gary looked him over carefully. Black hair with more than a few traces of gray. Combed straight back and in need of a cut. Large, greasy hands with dirty nails. The man's coveralls were stained with oil, and he needed a bath and a shave as well. Deciding the man passed muster, he motioned to someone standing at an office window above. A large overhead door began to rise. The driver put his truck into gear and lurched forward. As he entered the shop floor, he passed several cars being worked on by perhaps a dozen men. Some were being disassembled, others being ready for repainting. He found an empty bay toward the back and pulled into it, coming to a stop mere inches from a set of stairs leading up to the office overlooking the shop floor. Checking that his mobile was still in his pocket, he got down from the cab and made his way to the back of the van. You want to be careful with that one, the driver said. It's a nice motor, that is. Men motioned to two workers who dropped what they were doing and wheeled a ramp over to the truck. Harry swung open the doors. Inside was a black, sleek Lamborghini Gallardo, elegant and pristine or almost. The front cowl contained a large scrape where it had brushed against the wall of the truck during loading. What's this then? He looked at the driver accusingly. Not to deal with me. You know the drill. I just drive the truck. It's chained down in it. That way, that way when I picked up the truck. Gary glared at him, then he turned to the others. All right, get it out of there. Nothing we can't deal with. The driver breathed a sigh of relief and then felt for his phone in his jacket pocket. He found the button in the upper right corner and pressed it. A few moments later, all hell broke loose. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. So just before we go, would you like to tell everyone where they can get your books from and where they can find out more about you if they'd like to? Sure. Um, my books are, are both published by Friesen Press, which is available in, in Britain and other, well, worldwide, uh, as well as uh, available and through uh, Amazon. Uh, and that includes as an ebook not just a, a physical book. Uh, and um, they're, they're available in the entire world, uh, but uh, they've been getting the, the most uh, interest in the English-speaking world, and that includes Britain, obviously, uh, to some extent France and Germany and China, but also uh, Canada, the US most significantly, I guess, and Australia. Uh, so uh, they're, they're pretty widely available. Uh, if you go to my website, jimnapiermysteries.com, all lowercase, uh, you'll find more information about them as well as trailers, uh, video trailers for both books. Brilliant. Thank you very much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you, Donna, for having me. Bye-bye. <laughs>